Welcome to the North Lakes Podcast. Today we'll be speaking with licensed clinical social worker Sean Inderbitson about autism. I wanted to learn more about what it is and how it fits into our world, and Sean was a great person to talk to about it because not only is he a behavioral health therapist who sees people with autism, he also has it. I'm Jeremy Oswald, and I'm the host of the North Lakes Podcast. Let's get right to our conversation with Sean Inderbitson. I'm a behavioral health therapist. What do I do here at North Lakes? I do behavioral health therapy, um, primarily in the areas of school-based kiddos and um, just general population. I have a large percentage of my caseload that has autism um, and another large percentage that has OCD and trauma um, because usually when people come in thinking they have autism, it may or may not be autism. I think I'm the only person at North Lakes who assesses autism. I could be wrong, but that's what I do here. And you're we're we're in your office in Birchwood, but you're in Birchwood and Hayward. I am. And in the schools as well. I and am. Which schools are you in? Rice Lake and Birchwood. Um, and the reason I wanted to talk to you about autism is because you have it. It's true. I do. So um, I'm going to just come at this like simply. And uh, first of all, what is autism? So autism is really characterized by two things, restrictive and repetitive patterns of interest and behavior and difficulty with social cues, which is much more nuanced, but that is the idiot's guide to autism, so to speak. And it's, uh, it's a mental health it's just like yeah. what it's so i mean it, it's categorized a lot of ways right like it's one of the more well understood diagnoses in the world because there's so much interest in it um i mean it's theorized that it's about one in 44 americans now um i would call it a mental health disorder and i hold to that in the grounds that it's in the dsm-5 tr and not wrongfully so. I think there are people who would advocate that it's not a disability, and I think they're mistaken. And just how do what do, what do we call it? Is it like I mean, it's I a felt, mental health disorder. I mean, what? But I mean, I felt even like, am I allowed to say you're autistic? You know, you is it are. like so? Like what is it called? Anything else, or is that that's it? That's I mean, like I a, think the so there's all this argument about what's PC in. So let's back up. So in 1994, Judy Singer posited this idea that there are diverse brains due to diverse wiring. So the subculture has emerged globally called neurodiversity. I call it a subculture because it's not actually rooted in science, but has had tremendous implications, medically speaking, in educational settings and work settings. So the Americans with Disabilities Act really has set up it so that Things like IDEA, the Individuals with Disabilities and Education Act, cover things like autism um, and cover accommodations in the classroom. And in workplaces, same thing, accommodations in the workplace related to. And so you see that a lot in tech companies. Um, there's like an emerging interest in like J.P. Morgan and Chase, IBM, Microsoft, Google. And so there is worker protections and educational protections related to this idea of neurodiversity, even though there is no medical support for differential wiring. It's autism. 
It's just autism. Okay, good. Uh, and then I hear a lot about people being on the spectrum. What, yeah. what is that? So when we think about autism, we think about lots and lots. The historic um, symbol that's been used as a puzzle piece and, and sort of the thinking behind using that puzzle piece is that people with autism present in a range of ways, right? And so, I mean... So people present with autism in a range of ways around those two disorder or disordered patterns we talked about, that difficulty with social interaction and that difficulty with um, restrictive repetitive patterns of interest and behavior. So for one person, right, that might look like, I'm just trying to think of some people I see, right? Like that might look like somebody very much having like difficulty making eye contact, difficulty reading their emotions, difficulty with subtle social cues. And at the same time, right, like having these restrictive repetitive patterns of behavior. So they might be really interested in software engineering and actually be able to read 20 books and <laughs> like outpace these major corporations and algorithms and search engine optimization, right? So that's one presentation versus right like i get people in my office like i can remember one time where this kid like ran around the office almost escaped into the elevator right had some very big deficits with communication because didn't really have commun verbal communication had nonverbal communication but did not have the intellectual capacity to really capture that and so there's like so it's a range, right? Like it's it's a spectrum, if you will. And do you use that in your work? I mean, is it, you know, do you... What do you mean? Like that guy, I mean, when they say, when, is it like, you're a four on the spectrum? I don't mean, is it, how does it work? Or is it just that, like what you just said, it just kind of describes there's a whole variety of stuff. I think it describes a variety of stuff, right? Like, and I think what causes those restrictive patterns of, behavior and interest right like what is the function of that behavior is a really important question like is it decreasing stress inside is it some sort of flow like gallup would use or positive psychology would say or is like and like the causes that drive those things right like make it either autism or not autism and it's variations and so it's not a clear-cut no, like, this is what it always looks like as a phenotype. Yeah, so you're not like, oh, that guy's a seven, or that guy's no, like a B, B54, or whatever. No, I think about it more like population-wise. So I'm a populations researcher um, in the field of autism. And when I do research in this population, I look at it as, like, I know that one in two people with autism has a really hard time labeling and expressing their feelings. Right. Like that is just a thing that happens in the data that I know, like, you know, this tends to go with this. And so I think about it more like that, because to me, like looking at it population wise, like what is one in 44 Americans experiencing? And if they're have one and two and one in 44 Americans is experiencing having difficulties identifying, labeling, describing their feelings. Right. Like that's going to have a societal effect. Hmm. So I don't know if you can understand this question. Like, is there a, a cure? You know, like, and, and like I said, have you seen that movie Sound of Metal by any chance? I've never seen Sound of Metal. Okay. So, so just walk me through it. All right. So the Sound of Metal, 
was this movie where this guy became deaf and he was able to find a community and be part of this deaf community. But then when he went and got, you know, had something done. So I got his hearing back. He's like, he couldn't be part of that community anymore. Um, so I guess like, I guess when, like, when I say, is there a cure? Like, are there some like, well, is there a cure? And like, are, should there be like, I mean, like, so I think some you, people might even be offended by the question. Yeah. That's what it, right. I'm not, yeah. Because like, I'm a therapist, right? Like people, when they come to me, when you do therapy, it's because life is unmanageable, right? Like people don't come in here and they're like, yeah, I'm awesome. Like help me like build this tower. Like that's not why people come to therapy. People come to therapy because it is causing a functional impairment. And what that means is right. Like in the course of life, right? Like it is becoming so unmanageable that they need some help managing it. And so people like me and other people in the behavioral health department help people manage this. And so like when somebody comes in with autism, right. Or suspected autism, right. Like, and I like the term autism adjacent is sort of the term I throw around. Um, sometimes people want to change it and sometimes people don't. I, I don't know that it's a uniform thing. If we're looking at it purely medically, yes, I think it changes over time. Yes, you could say like somebody is more or less autistic. I don't know that I'd use the word cure um, because I don't know that like there are evolutionary adaptations, right? Like if we look at Alan Turing had most likely had autism and think about his impact on computers and just where we would be today without Alan Turing's notice for recognition, right? Well, but, uh, and that's what I was trying to get. I wasn't saying like that. I think there should be one. It was that, that, you, you know, like it maybe it'd be easier for me if everyone was more like me, oh, yeah. you know, and that's like, that's rude, I think, to even. Oh, absolutely. And so that's why that's why I was throwing it out. But there. it's also very common mm -hmm. to have that view, right? Like, I think if you look at politics today, right, like I'm not going to pick a political side here, more just like this idea that there's so much division in our country. Like you think about how Republicans and Democrats like. They just passed gun legislation for the first time and since like Bill Clinton was president in the early 90s. And like the notion that they could work together on something is almost like laughable. But like I think it's not much different for people. They want people to be more like themselves. Like one in two Americans can't or not one in two Americans. One in two people with autism has difficulty with identifying, labeling and describing their feelings. Right. Like. They probably wish the world was more rational. That makes for a great software engineer, but not necessarily a great therapist, hmm. if you will. And then, so how can some people support and be respectful to folks with autism? I think. And the other thing I got to say is like, I don't like it's it's hard. Like, I don't want to say like. You know, autism is one thing. So to like say that, I mean, it's going to be a different wrong thing to use that label. That's okay. a label that the DSM prescribes for us. But it's also, I don't think it's like this is what you can do for everyone that has it. You know, I don't mean to like make it sound like there's just one fit for everything. So, but like, how can people support and be respectful to folks with autism? I mean, I think so. When we talk about Judy Singer's neurodiversity hypothesis, right? Like, the aims of behind that hypothesis, the goals of that movement, 
of neurodiversity or increased tolerance for behavior and thought process due to some unknown cause. And, and I think, right, like the aims of increasing tolerance for ideas and behaviors is a really great notion. Like I think, right, it's part of American exceptionalism, right? Like this sort of multiplicity, right? Like I think trying to perspective take is a super valuable thing. And I think when you're with people with autism, you're just encountering somebody who's a little more themselves than you might be. If that makes sense. Well, yeah, right. It's kind of like asking, like, how do we support people that are shy or that have, you know, like, you know what I like? Yeah. It's yeah. Um, are there some really hard don'ts or things people do that you think that they think they're being considerate, but they're but it is not? I. So I, there are some really hard don'ts that people I don't think think about that people we serve probably do. I think people use the R word quite a bit. And I take pretty great offense to that. Even if they're like, and I'll do it with my, my clients. I'll say, yeah, please never use that again. And I'll just be that clear cut. Cause it is that clear cut. That is not a word that is helpful. It, it was a word used to describe slowness. And, and it makes more sense and is more accessible to say that person's slow than to say they are indeed that term because that term is offensive and is a pretty strong don't in my book. It's mine too. Awesome. I, I, I think. I mean, I like kind of goes without saying. I think that's well, a. You would hope it would, but it doesn't. Like you would be amazed at how often it comes up in therapy where people use it in slang, and it's like, hold on a second. Like this popular like word, like this word that appears in Northwestern Wisconsin culture because it's a social norm that doesn't make it okay, but it's also a thing that people we serve do. And like, yeah, it's hard because I see it all, right? Like I see people who are severely mentally impaired. I see those folks. I also see people who are not at all impaired in that way. And so it's a lot easier for them to not know about that other person's experience. It seems like it's an easy, like I was saying before, like, you know, we just want to be able to label it and put it somewhere. And like, that's a real easy out for someone that doesn't want to take, out. doesn't want to take the, you know, time to like dig a little, even not even dig a little deeper, but just be respectful. Well, it's interesting, right? Because I think there is among TikTok, I can't believe I'm talking about TikTok. I don't even have a TikTok. I wouldn't even know what to do with it. But um, I didn't have a Facebook for like six years and I still don't. My Some friends made me create like a profile for a messenger group. But anyways, that is neither here nor there. <laughs> um, but like there's this movement within people who are generally in that Gen Z range to want to be autistic. I don't really get it. Like for me, right? Like having autism has never been helpful like like i had it used against me in family court right like my ex tried to take my kids from me on the basis that i had autism the judge actually went with it because he had a daughter with autism on that non-verbal non-speaking incapacitated side but think about if that's the judge's frame of reference and he's making a decision about where do we place these kids can this decision come back to bite me in the ass He's going to use that frame of reference because that frame of reference is his daughter. 
Mm-hmm. And so if my ex-wife says Sean has autism and he's seeing the severely impaired person, why wouldn't he think that? Um, I'm glad he was able to see through it. <laughs> well, it took 10 or 11 months. It didn't happen overnight, right? Like I had to prove it, which is really messed up, but like... There was no evidence to support it, right? Like, I have a, I'm a licensed clinical social worker. At the time, I was a certified social worker. You don't just get that license by accident. Right. And how, like, like just maybe, like, a little bit of a, I don't know if you can put it on a timeline, but, like, ten, 10 years ago, would that have been different? 20 years ago? I mean, is there, like, is there been an evolution of... Understanding this of uh, yeah of you, <laughs> no. I'm, I mean, so like, if the question is, is there an evolution in the understanding of autism? Yeah, and the science, yeah. Like I, so I work with some people through the Polyvagal Institute, is what they're called, um, sort of on one paradigm of autism, which is that it's a state specific condition, and there is no differential wiring, right? Like we're putting out a paper. It, it's like a thing, right? There are other camps, right? Like there's Simon Baron Cohen who says the cause of autism is too much testosterone in the mother's womb. There are other theories out there. There's like Leo Connor's theory of like big heads and little heads. Like there are all these different perspectives, but like I think some hold more true over time than others. So like real easy example of one that hasn't held a lot of weight is Leo Connor's, right? You would think that having a larger head size evolutionarily would give someone more processing power, right? And that processing power would be very advantageous evolutionarily, right? Because increased tools, increased problem solving, increased pattern recognition. However, when you start to look at like my patients, right? If I just look at my patient load and I look at the people who don't have jobs, who have either autism or autism adjacent symptoms, Having a big head isn't that helpful, right? So, like, I think there has been some evolution in this thought since 1943 with Leo Connor's work to now. I mean, even with Simon Baron Cohen's work, I, I think there's some weaknesses in that. I think it is state-specific. Or the neurodiversity hypothesis, right? Like, this idea that neurodiversity is caused by some differential wiring is a fairy tale, right? Like, there's no medical evidence that is widely accepted Right. There's evidence out of Vanderbilt that says, yeah, like there are differential thought processes, but there's nothing in my mind saying that couldn't just be a different in state. Like if you're constantly in threat, how are humans are incredibly adept at surviving Um, and it's what makes our species wonderful. But yeah, at least for me, right, like my autism, I think it's grown and developed and it's sometimes I probably have had it more than others. Like when I was 18 and in a car wreck, right. I had felony charges brought up against me and like, because I left the scene of the accident, probably like a little more stressed out, bit more of a fight, flight, freeze threat state. And so like that versus now where I'm like, I work at North Lakes. Like I know I have retirement. Like, there's some grants out there that I'm working on. There's some cool projects I'm doing. Like 18-year-old Sean versus 32-year-old Sean, very different animals. That's if that's got to be great for someone to talking to someone who's 18 right now to be able to put it in a little bit of perspective for them. It is. I think it gives them hope. Like I I just think 
people often are caught up in the circumstances of their lives, but they don't really think about how they might adjust and change and reorient and reorganize when they're not in those circumstances, right? So, like, if somebody's 18 and they're about to go off to college, right, like, they don't know what their life is going to be like in 10 years. I, I sure didn't. <laughs> I, I, I mean, but, I... Go ahead. But here you are. You're, you know, like, a, safe to say you're a great example. Yeah, I mean, I think to some degree, right, like, I've had some success in post-secondary education and working and, you know, connecting to social work and its value systems like, I, I haven't gone to bad schools. I've gone to Case Western Reserve. Now I'm at Tulane. Like, I mean, these are not... These are prestigious institutions, right? Like, they don't let just anybody in. And what? so what, uh, what drew you to behavioral health? <clears throat> so that was actually kind of an accident more than anything. <laughs> and I don't know how Susan will feel when she hears this, because I'm sure she already knows, because I'm sure I've told her more than once. But Susan Kettler, oh, yeah. she's my boss. <laughs> Um, she's a great boss. I love having her as a boss. Of the bosses I've ever had, she's my favorite. And I've told her this, and I've told others this, that have been my bosses, um, which is ironic. But nevertheless, um, so I wanted to be a policy analyst, right? Um, so when I got my MSW, I thought, oh, I'll be a policy analyst. And I actually did a macro focus track. Um, and then I, my kids are what's most important for me. And so I stayed for them because I have half-time placement, which I love. Again, that was that whole debate in family court, right? Like, was getting this. And so once I got it, I wasn't going to just be like, no, I'm not going to, like, no. Like, I am here to stay. I'm here to watch them grow. Um, I can't believe how fast they're growing up. But How old are you? My you kids are six and eight. And my <laughs> eight-year-old and six-year-old are feel like they're, want to be teenagers already and i can like see it like it's weird to me because i work at rice lake middle school and like they don't know this yet but my son right is going into third grade and when he gets to fifth grade i'll have to either go to the high school or an elementary school because we don't work at the schools our kids are at and so it's it's a very real like thing like because they're developing and growing but so I wanted to be a policy analyst. I even got offered a job as one, and I declined it because I wanted to be there for my kids. And so I'm here for my kids, and, you know, I love it. And I love watching them grow up, and they're kind of everything for me. So basically, I ended up in behavioral health after declining to be a policy analyst because I wanted to stick around for my kids. And my therapist at the time was like, you know what you'd be really good at? Because I had no idea what I'd be really good at. And she's like, you'd be a great therapist for people with autism. So I went with it. And sure enough, Susan and Jess took a leap of faith on me. And then sure enough, here I am three years later, still a therapist with people with autism. Like actually like considered a national subject matter expert on the thing, which is wild to me. And never really would have put it together that that's going to happen. But and you enjoy it i mean you, yeah you, it's rewarding yeah I, uh -huh. I think it's super rewarding because the way i come at it is very community mental health right like i don't come at it as a private practitioner like a psychologist who only assesses autism like there are people in my vein of autism and mental health who that's all they do and i just don't think that's a very helpful approach like i come at it from a holistic point of view that's how I was brought up clinically by Susan and just like some of my own experience, right? Community mental health 
is about serving people in communities. And so I look at people through that lens. I look at through, through the lens of who are these people and what factors are affecting them, not some narrow test, because I'm looking at all the factors. I'm looking at this as a DSM diagnosis. That's why I think it's so important we call it a mental health diagnosis. Because, right, like if you go to the county level, right, like you will actually see a divide between comprehensive community services and children's waiver services. There's like this distinct, like if they have autism, they go here. If they have mental health, they go over here. And like, what? That, that surprises me. Looks like it's like, I don't know. Like I thought like if you have this, you go here and that you go there. It's not like case by case basis. Absolutely not. Really? Yeah. But that's why it's important. We call it a mental health diagnosis. Yeah. Because a lot of like I have had more than one client like come in to me and be like, I don't trust therapists. Like that's not an uncommon experience for people with autism because a lot of times they open up and get shut down because the therapist, one in four therapists in Wisconsin can say this from my own data that I've collected. It's only like a sample of 55 isn't comfortable serving somebody with autism. I know. Like, what the heck? Uh, okay. Um, well, so in that, I mean, that gets back, I think, why I was kind of asking these some of these questions earlier. It's like, I don't want to, like, I, I try not to, like, pigeonhole people no matter what, you know? So, mm-hmm. like, when you, th- and I thought that was important to, like, talk about what is it and, like, what we call it and those kind of things because, I don't, you know, like I'm a curly headed guy with glasses, you know, like who looks like Elvis Costello. There you go. So, but I mean like, (laughs) oh, that guy, I know everything about him, you know, like I hope you don't. And I, so that, that's, I just find that very surprising. It's like someone walks in the door, like they're autistics, like, okay, this is, this is your path. There you go. Well, but I mean, think about it in terms of, so like I do a lot with therapists Um, in terms of training them in this area. And one of the things we talk a lot about is like, if you think about their workloads, right? And let's just take public sector, like one of these social workers at the county, right? Like they are stretched super thin. They don't have a ton of resources and everybody expects the world of them. And so if you had an easy out, like say you were in their shoes and you could just make a referral, why wouldn't you? Yeah, let's close the file on this one. And, yeah, let's yeah. move it over to where the services belong. Because my caseload, I have 40 people. And if I can get this one off, then I have 39. Right. And able to offer more care to those people. Or, right. And you know. so it's an ethical decision, mm-hmm. but it's not one they really think through the implications of. And so, right, like it would not be uncommon for somebody to say, we've been to a local inpatient unit. We went in without trauma. We came out with trauma. And now we won't trust mental health providers. Like I have more than one person on my caseload where that is the case. And what part of that, I, like, how, how does, how do parents, like, how, what tools are there for them? I mean, like, how do, like, I, I mean, and I'm sure different parents react in different ways. Sure. You know, as with everything. Well, I can tell you here about North Lakes. I can't tell you about no, everywhere. But right. here at North Lakes myself and another therapist, Courtney Tripp, uh, run a parent's psychotherapy group. It's not a support group. It's a therapy group. And the reason I say it's a therapy group is because we do therapy with parents 
and sort of focusing on like what strategies and skills and knowledge do you need to be better equipped to work with a kid who's got medical com- complexity. I hate the term special needs. Um, I, I struggle with that term, but medical complexity I like because it really describes the experience of people um, who have kids on the spectrum. Because usually, right, like there's a GI problem or a sleep problem or a psychiatry problem or a eating problem or a like you have to look at the whole person. Right. Like this person with autism, right, like might be stabbing their sibling because they have something going on in their stomach and they can't eat. Or they might like, you know, they might not sleep. And so they're really irritable or they might be really anxious because there's too much light coming into their eye. And uh, I and I know you can't again speak. All you can speak is to North Lakes. But I mean, what does a parent do? I mean, like, is there like. I mean, you know, they all, I'm not a parent, so I don't know. Like, sure. you know, like I can't, I can't imagine what a parent be like, how do I, wh- what's going on with my child? You know? And I don't know, like I said, you can't speak for everybody, but like, I wonder, oh. I'm like wondering what that experience must be like for a So I parent. love the still faces experiment. Are you familiar with it? No. So the still faces experiment was put on by Ed Tronic. Basically it looks at this mother and this kid. Right. And so the kid, like, does that thing with its arms, it coos, it moves its face, the mom moves her face, coos, like, does all the, hi, how are you? Like, all those things we expect moms to do. But then in the experiment, the mom stops doing anything, her face is still, and the baby keeps doing it. And first the baby starts, like, cooing, and going, hi, hey, and then pretty quickly the baby gets mad and angry, and, like, gets really frustrated and we just kind of let that play out for like a minute and then the mom starts responding normally again and it's sort of like the good the bad the ugly right like in good situations kids have the opportunity to repair that juncture in the bad right like they have some but not a lot versus the none at all right so when we think about like what do we do in terms of parenting right like i think it's about that sort of good bad and ugly thing right like we're always either attuning to our kiddos where not attuning to our kiddos or we're repairing with our kiddos in the best case scenarios that's about 33 percent to each and so when it comes to working with a kiddo with autism right i, I think it's really kind of simple <laughs> like perhaps people will fault me for saying this but i think it really is about just being willing to learn what does my kid need and really like not trying to like analyze the hell out of it. I think that's a pretty common experience for the kids that I serve, right? Is they try to do that. And what I've observed is the parents try to do that. And that doesn't really help them appreciate their kid for being their kid at 10 years old or seven, right? Like your kid's still a kid. And you're still the mom and the dad and mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> it's just there are all these other extraneous forces, right? Like that make us feel judged, whether that's churches and their forms of discipline or like doctors, right? Saying you need to get your kid off screen time. Like there's all these judgments and these judgments just really get in the way of like that attunement, which is really just about being present with your kiddo 
Even if your kiddo wants to wake you up at seven in the morning when you're obviously sleeping. But any kid can do that. Exactly. <laughs> right? Any kid can do that. Right, yes. <laughs> and they probably do. <laughs> they do. My seven-year-old, eight-year-old did this morning. He's not seven anymore. See, it's flying by. Huh. Uh, one, uh, you did mention, or, or one thing I want to make sure to point out is that um, I don't want to say that I'm intimidated by speaking with you, but I think you're the only other person I've spoken with that you've done a number of podcasts you've done, you know, like it seems like every other week you're sending the marketing department, like here's another podcast I was on. And so, but I, I, I just want to throw this into our conversation. So if you want to hear more of Sean, there's a lot of Sean out there. There's a ton of Sean out there. And I've enjoyed it. I just listened to the one the other day um, that you just recently sent. Oh, Uh, uniquely human. Yes. Yeah. That was good. Think. I loved it. I'm like, I don't even need to do a podcast with this guy. I kind of covered it. <laughs> well, I mean, Uniquely Human, like, it's it's a pretty big podcast. Like, I really love, there's some episodes out there from when I first got into this scene. Like, because again, like, I'm in this with an agenda, right? Like, my agenda is to transform the way people see autism. Um, my aims are more towards, like, looking at this as a modifiable condition over time and really, like, trying to find this as a more state specific thing, not so much a differential wiring thing, because I think there's some hairy implications to that, but barring that, right? Like there's some older podcasts. There's one called normal with autism um, that I just adore. And these two ladies from Ohio, did you find that one too? I, I listened to that one. Yeah, that was good. I love that one. That was one of my favorite ones. That was one of the earliest ones I ever did. If somebody wanted, do you, you have a website, don't you? Are they, do you have them all there? Um, or some of the good ones, the ones you no, want to share? actually, so I haven't kept up with my website very well. Um, my LinkedIn is probably the best place to find it. Um, so looking for SeanInderbitson.com on there or finding me on Instagram is going to have more current content because I haven't updated my website for like a year and it's, it's got a contact form, which is a great way to get a hold of me. I'll um in the show notes, I'll okay find the best maybe your LinkedIn page, but great. at least I'll spell it out because <laughs> well, it's a it's a good way to find me because I update that, I post on that, and there's some cool things coming that I think people will really like. Like there's a grant with a local healthcare system we're working on where. I think we're going to train their docs and how to be more confident working with autism. So it really can transform some of the local inpatient units and medical providers and increased healthcare access. Um, and I can tell you this isn't North Lakes, but that's all I can tell you. I'll, uh, well, when I come back in a year and we redo this, maybe we can talk about it. <laughs> um, and you don't just see uh, patients with autism. I mean, you're like, I think, and this was what I remember in the other pod that, other podcasters like no i don't i want to i'm not just that guy you do it all i do do it all i mean that's that whole community mental health thing i was telling you about yeah like i treat primarily autism and trauma those are sort of my two areas um and so all the things in between there right so i've got some of my population that i serve has ocd um a fair amount of the kiddos i serve because i work in community mental health have ptsd so I felt like it was really important to get an approach and some training in that 
And so I have training in sensory motor psychotherapy up to the second level. So like I do developmental wounds related to the body. I do body single incident traumas. I'm even getting some EMDR training. I'm skeptical, but I know a lot of really great EMDR practitioners, so I'm not knocking it. I just don't know that it's a Sean thing. And you don't just see kids. You see people of all ages. All ages, old to young. Six is sort of where I start. And that is pushing it because my kids are that age. (laughs) They get older. That number kind of gets higher, but you know, got it. Um, so I bet like, and I'm one of them do a lot of people come to you with autism questions. Yes. And, um, I bet not everyone would like that role. How do you sit with it? I mean, sometimes I think about like, what if I did something else? Like, what would that look like? But, then this thing finds new ways to like be (laughs) if that makes sense right so like i've become really involved with polyvagal theory as a perspective on autism which has led me to some projects on clothing design yeah i know right like why would a therapist be designing clothes it's because you can work with the autonomic nervous system and really like predict some things with your heart rate variability and i'm not going to get too much into what that is but like I mean, it it allows autism questions to not be so narrow because it really speaks to a much wider experience, right? Like, what is the body of a person with autism like? Like, what's their heart rate like? What is... What is... I'm trying to think what else. Like, what does their body go through? How? What is their texture sensitivity, right? Like, what is their taste? What is their... Like, I'm not just dealing with one part of the body yet. No, well, that was another thing I was going to ask that I didn't put on here is that like, what are, well, this is kind of into it is like, are there other conditions associated? Oh, absolutely. But but the other thing I was going to ask is like, how do people who have autism have a higher degree of like hypertension or cancer? You know, I don't know. Like, like it's dandruff syndrome, right? uh, right? Like, so like, and hyperplasticity, right? So like. There is research coming out of, I think, the UK about Ehlers-Danros Syndrome um, and having a much higher probability of having autism and Ehlers-Danros Syndrome. There's also, like, part of how I stay current in the sciences, I do some of my, so we do monthly, or not monthly, weekly consultations each week at North Lakes here with our behavioral health departments. And I spend one week a month at the UC Mind Davis Institute Echo Autism Program for that consultation. So I sort of outsource some of that and so what some of the it's really interesting because every month we get a different topic so some of the topics they've covered are like sleep problems and autism which is a thing and like gastrointestinal problems and feeding and like language and and so like it's not just one area right like there's all like i have one client who is absolutely fascinating where i'm not sure if he has epilepsy or dissociative amnesia (laughs) they have to like actually refer them to Mayo Rochester because there are no pediatric neurologists around but answering that question is really important to this child's well-being in terms of their ability to drive right like if they strike someone on the road and they had epilepsy all wrong (laughs) whose license is on the line so I just yeah I I get leery Mm -hmm. (laughs) one one of the things I like about working here at North Lakes is the the spirit of camaraderie and collaboration mm-hmm. 
who do you collaborate with? I mean, in this clinic that we're here in Birchwood, it's you and a dentist. I mean, in a lot of, I mean, that's, I'm simplifying it, yeah, but like, but who else do you collaborate with North Lakes and how does it make it helpful to within you? Within North Lakes or yeah. outside of North Lakes? Anything. Within start North start Lakes, within North Lakes. I tend to collaborate a lot with Faye Wallace, who's leaving, which breaks my heart. Um, so please put that in the podcast because it makes me sad. Um, she's going, but I'm really excited for her for what she's doing next. Um, so I collaborate a lot with her on any of my questions about adaptive information processing theory. What does Faye do for those who don't so know? So Faye does EMDR, um, which is eye movement desensitization rapid reprocessing EMDR eye movement desensitization reprocessing <laughs> it's a tricky acronym but she does this bilateral stimulation with both parts of the brain to process trauma and so that modality uses a model of trauma called adaptive information processing um, and so there's some stuff I pull from in that vein of things so I collaborate a lot with her um, if it's LGBTQIA issues or pain management issues, it's a lot with Tamlin, who had was on your long COVID episode. Um, if it's more just like, how do I do techniques? It's a lot of my clinical supervision with Susan. Um, if it's more of the parenting stuff, I collaborate a lot with Courtney out of Turtle Lake um, because she does quite a bit with that. If I have a Kate, I have been having more patients with dissociative disorders. I don't know why it's something in the water, I suppose, but like I've diagnosed five or six people with dissociative disorders this past year. Just And I, I wonder if there's like some connection to COVID. So I talked to Allison about that outside of North Lakes. I spend a lot more time consulting with people like Judy Reven from UC, University of Denver. Um, she works in the Colorado Medical School. Um, I collaborate with Stephen Porges um, on anything polyvagal. Um, and so if I have questions about polyvagal theory, I just go straight to him. Um, if it's trauma-related, I sort of ask some of my clinical mentors, right? So Dr. Bonnie Goldstein, Dr. Lachelle LaRube, Larasby, I think is how you say her last name, not LaRube, um, or Dr. Matt Lerner out of Stony Brook. Um, these are sort of my go-to people, depending on what it is. It's a lot of people, but it's probably more than you asked for. No, that's, I asked the question. I can't like take it back. <laughs> but um, when you were any of the occupational therapy folks or speech therapy, and maybe my Ashland bias is showing up because I'm kind of in the epicenter of it up there. Well, so they adhere a lot to... Like, I know some really good OTs outside of North Lakes, like Kim Bartholomew, um, who is just, like, a leader, like, speaks at national and international conferences on OT. Um, I coordinate, or I do quite a bit with Jordan Chingo. Um, I'm really a fan of Caitlin Rohr, who does feeding behavior stuff. Some of my clients call her work feeding school, which I adore. Um, <laughs> Or food school, I think they termed it, was mm -hmm. the term they used. But it just, so I, I coordinate with them a little bit. Um, we don't have the level of connection just because, right? Like, I do quite a bit with Miriam Sword um, with medication management. And that mostly is connected to ADHD because they do the QB testing, I think it's called. Um, but I always try to 
do my own testing ahead of time. And so it's, I mean, I guess I don't get connected as much to the therapists and people up there because I live in this part of the world and then I'm sort of national, right? Like UC Mind Davis Institute or like Dr. Brenna Maddox from UNC Chapel Hill, like, or these people through the Polyvagal Institute, right, who do, who like teach OTs or teach speech pathologists, right? Like it cuts out a lot of that conversation for me. I don't know if it's like on purpose, but it just kind of happens. There's not a lot of opportunity to get up that way and really get to know people. Um, it's just one of the COVID realities that we've embraced for better or worse. But sounds like there's plenty of folks that you work with in North Lakes. It's oh, yeah. not like it's just a ton. Uh, yeah. I just feel bad that I don't get to those other regions within North Lakes, but what else? I guess I I covered all my questions. Um anything else that I you'd like to speak more about or I mean, not really. I feel like this is the Where's Waldo of autism, so I don't feel like we need to get into the autism, like what is autism through polyvagal theory stuff. Like if they want to, they can listen to the Uniquely Human podcast for that. I don't know. I mean, do you feel like we missed anything? We didn't talk a whole lot about interventions. Did you want to talk about that? I don't even know what that is. So um, what is it? So treatments, right? Like working with somebody with autism, what are some ways we can work with people would be an intervent would be what an intervention is. Okay, what's that? What do you do? What do I do? Or I do what a- what is it? <laughs> so I mean, in therapy we have different practices. I use a lot of sensory motor psychotherapy and motivational interviewing. Those are sort of my two horses in the race, if you will. Um, and motivational interviewing is really about partnering with somebody about them being experts on their lives towards the change they want to make and things getting in the way of that. And sensory motor psychotherapy is more about working with the trauma in the body and its physiological expressions and how do we have a felt sense of safety in our body. So, I mean, those are really the two ways I work with people with autism, but you know, mindfulness is powerful. Um, okay, I got one other thing, and this is like, I hope you don't mind, I'm going out on a little bit of a limb here. Okay, so, um, what, um, you know, like, in my life, um, I run into people that I'm like, huh, I wonder, you know, and I don't, uh, you know, like, part of me is like, it's none of my business if they're autistic, but maybe they are, and, and it kind of gets back to that question I asked earlier of how can I support and be respectful to folks with autism? But maybe that's just like, how can I be respectful to folks, period? Well, I think your latter statement is probably in the right ballpark, right? Like, remember, the aims of neurodiversity as a movement are to increase tolerance and acceptance for differential behaviors and thoughts and beliefs. So the more pluralistic you can be, the more, for lack of a word, safe you can be for difference like that's a thing that is getting lost in the shuffle and the puffle of the world like there was really popular when i was like 2008 2009 but like i think we've sort of lost that and so if you want to make space for somebody with autism right like just make space for difference like don't dissuade people just because it feels wrong immediately try and get curious or be mindful, I guess. Yeah, yeah, right. I, I you know, like, it's, 
like I the example I was thinking of, and I don't know if I already said it, like I could say the same thing, like, how do I be supportful, supportive of someone who's shy? You know, like it's kind of like it's the same, same thing. thing. Yeah, yeah. It's that simple and that hard. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It is. Um, my last question for you uh is what's in your car? What's in my car? Like, what do you mean? This is the my kind of my shtick, Sean, as I ask all my guests what's in their car. Well, I have a gym bag, a longboard, some bywater, it's all coconut flavored, and some granola bars and soccer balls. Okay, that's that's Lots it. That's all. Seats, yeah. You know, like nothing too exciting, I guess. I mean, I like the coconut water. It really works for me. Nice. Thanks a lot for doing this. It's nice to hang out and talk to you. No problem, man. It was a pleasure. All right. Talk to you soon. Sounds good. Sean Enderbitson is a behavioral health therapist who sees patients at our clinics in Birchwood and Hayward and in some of the schools in that area. In case you're interested in finding some of the other podcasts that he has been on, I'm going to spell out his name for you. His last name is Enderbitson, I N. D-E-R-B-I-T-Z-E-N. The one we spoke the most about is called Uniquely Human. Um, and I found that one very interesting. He also mentioned that you can check him out on LinkedIn. North Lakes Community Clinic produces the North Lakes podcast, and I'm the host, Jeremy Oswald. North Lakes Community Clinic is a community health center in Wisconsin with locations in Ashland, Birchwood, Chippewa Falls, Hayward, Hurley, Iron River, Lakewood, Minong, Oconto, Park Falls, Turtle Lake, Washburn, and White Lake. We offer a variety of services, provide a sliding fee scale, and see people regardless of their ability to pay. You can call us at 888-834-4551, and we're on the web at NLCC wi.org nlccwi.org thank you so much for listening and don't be afraid to drop me a line to let me know what's in your car you can email me at marketing at nlccwi.org north lakes is also on facebook and instagram please follow us Thank you so much for listening to the North Lakes podcast.